Time 2 Mediation Station. This is your host, Greg Fenton. Each week we explore topics and ideas related to the experience of people with conflict and look to promote the profession of conflict resolvers. We are available to connect with at greggf at prinus.ca and 647-227-4734. Visit us at our Facebook page to like us and Facebook group page to become a member. Also visit YouTube channels for both CHHA 1610AM and Greg Fenton. Listen to podcasts of each radio show by visiting either of SoundCloud.com or iTunes podcasts under Mediation Station in the Arts area. We have a Twitter account and it is at Fenton Mediation, so make sure to follow us. With us tonight is Jim Fitch and we're going to talk about lies our trainers tell us. Hi Jim. Good evening. How are you, Greg? I'm uh I'm I'm okay overall. I've been under the influence of some illness of something. There's a lot of that going around yeah. right now. It's uh, yeah. December in Canada. Yeah, just under the weather a bit. Well, thanks for taking time to uh, to talk with me tonight. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for uh, coming in from a distance. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Can we blame any of this on someone else who's not in the room? Well, we could definitely toss it on your regular co-host, Joni Cass, because I know she's been ill, so uh, let's just blame her. Hi, Joni. Yeah, so that's the uh, radio elf we call her here. Is that right? Yeah, the elf. Well, she's on the shelf today. That's that's right, and uh, I hope she doesn't fall too far. It's the worst joke ever. Well, it, you know, it worked, and, uh, you know, we'll just go with the flow. Yeah, we'll leave it all behind us. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, Johnny, appreciate it. I hope you feel better soon, as we know you're under the weather as well. So, how about you start off and share some information about your professional background, Jim? Oh, sure. Um, well, I am uh, a parenting coordinator, a family mediator, and arbitrator working out of Oakville. I live in Burlington. I like to help mostly families in transition resolve conflicts by having difficult conversations that are also important. I guess that's really what we, we all try to do. and. And hopefully uh, we can help people make some, you know, some choices for themselves and, and the conflicts that they have in their lives. Why have you gravitated to this kind of approach in terms of working with people, families, relationships? Well, I think, uh, I, I guess it's sort of an open secret in, in the family mediation field that a lot of people obtain some of the drive to do that from, from their own relationship transitions. Mm. Um, I guess a you know running joke is that you discover that your divorce wasn't as bad as you thought once you experience some other people's and and you know it, it it is sort of funny I suppose but I think there's some truth to it. Um, certainly, I've always been interested in in I, I guess like all of us in in helping people that are experiencing change because change is something that we can never escape none of us and. It's also nice to feel like you're on the side of peace, you know, instead of perhaps sometimes contributing to ramping up conflicts in, in people's lives. And I know a lot of people that come from the law background. I, I, I'm not a recovering litigator. Uh, many people are. Uh, my, my background is government and publishing and professional regulation, which hopefully we'll talk about a little bit. But um, certainly being on what I like to think is a side of the angels is very rewarding personally for me and I, I'm sure for most of our colleagues Craig yeah well it resonates with me in terms of when you talk about uh, change 
and the whole nature of that. And that's the lens I look through in terms of working with people. And there's people's struggles with the intersection of change or whether they do actually or not. It continu it's a continuum that happens regardless of whether you intersect with it or not. Yeah, the, the choice is, is yours, but the facts are, are still there in front of us, aren't they? So Life goes on. Mm -hmm. As we are here communicating with each other, things are happening regardless of whether we want them to or not. So uh, as a professional, how do you navigate you know, the, the dimensions of your previous history working what government policy sure and transition to mediation which do you see any connection of the two or not well um i had been in the in the publishing industry as well so sort of work in ra writing and editing and drafting documents is, is certainly you know, on a day-to-day -day basis something that a lot of of dispute resolution professionals find themselves doing so you know i mean in that trite sense there's that but I've been very concerned um, for the last 25 years, really, with professional regulation and professional discipline and fitness to practice and conduct and ethics and things like that. And I've been involved in various health uh, colleges. I was uh, chair of discipline for the College of Physiotherapists. I was chair of discipline for the Royal College of Dental Surgeons. Um, I was seconded to the Ministry of Health when they were drafting amendments to the Regulated Health Professions Act. And I think there is where I really fell in love with letting professionals flourish within a controlled environment. Um, I like to say that uh, just about every other branch of a professional's life is dedicated towards making things easier to do that. But there has to be the reins. Someone has to make it harder if necessary in order to make sure that everyone's um, practicing with the degree of excellence and skill that, that they want to. Yeah, well, this is a good segue to help us with our conversation in some way. Uh, who's to define what that spectrum is or that confines is or whatever you want to call it? It's a challenging thing in mediation, isn't it? It seems to be. When you're in an unregulated profession, which is what mediation is, and I can tell you there is no political will, and I'm sure you know this, Craig, there's no political will in this province anyway to have a um, college of mediators. mediators. There, there really isn't. Um, we could talk later, if you want, about whether there should be, but there isn't. And so the organizations that come together to support the profession and to provide accreditation a lot of the time are there in great measure to once you've got your ticket right and you're in and you're an accredited person mm -hmm. you have a QMED for example or whatever the case may be then for the most part they're there to support enhance and make easier your practice of mediation right? and some of my experiences trying to draft codes of conduct and and discipline and complaints policies and things um, can get some some pushback because well we have to support the membership we have to make people want to join we uh, and if we're reserving the right to eject people from the organization no one will wish to be a participant and and i think that underestimates the professional community I think we all want to, to the best of our abilities, constantly improve and perform at the highest level that we can. Um, 
and um, it's it, it has been disappointing seeing some some pushback, a little bit of gutting, if you will. Well, you know, some people have a differing differing perspective, and their interests are not always shared in terms of what the goal would be. No, that's true. That, so. that's, I mean, it's a very valid point, but I guess I'm a little strict on things like that, and it's made me odd. I, you know, I, different. Let's reframe it here. Let's use our mediator talk. All right. Um, you know, when I was involved with the community mediation world, it was my in, in purpose or intention that there was a recognition of the quality of the service that we delivered to the community because it was consisting of volunteer community mediators. Sure. And the perception could have been and might have been that volunteer is a lesser than quality than a, quote, paid person, which was always my interest as the coordinator, case manager, director, to keep the pressure on us within our roster or our program sure. to keep elevating the quality of the professional volunteer mediator. That's fantastic. I mean, I think um, continual education and just a commitment to yourself is, is going to drive you forward. And yeah, I've never believed that, um, what, the, the canard that volunteers in the long run are the most expensive help you'll ever have. That That's not true. There are good and bad volunteer members of every profession and good and bad paid ones. That's um, for sure. You know, multitasking is really a skill. And I'm not sure if I can have my skills on that, but nevertheless, it's happening. Looking good. We have a caller. Would you like us to engage that caller? Oh, certainly. Sur hello. Surprises are good. Yeah, hello, caller. Hello. <laughs> Ms. Cass, good evening. <laughs> it's the elf. It's the um, you have to acknowledge her. How are things on the shelf, my dear? I'm so sorry that you're unwell, Joni. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the lovely shout-out, both of you. That was... That was that made me feel so much better, like chicken soup. So you're driving here? Are you on your way here? Because we have <laughs> we got three quarters of the show left. Well, I don't feel that much better, and I have a sick little kitty cat sitting on me too. So everybody in this house is sick. Oh, I'm sorry. I hope you'll feel better soon. Thank you. But um, you're sounding good so far. So far. Um, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to know what these lies are that your trainers have told you, and if I know any of the ones who have told you these lies. Um, we might li we might lie about that. Who knows? We might lie about that. But no, the conversation is very interesting because, um, as you know, I'm on the board of, of uh, one of the organizations that sets standards for mediators, and and it is a bit of a conundrum, you know. There's it's kind of, um, oh my God, my cat is sneezing on me. Oh, good Lord. Okay. You know, sorry about that. Live um, radio, you know? Yeah, it's yeah, in the moment. Sorry about that. Yeah. Um, but. What would you like to it, share about? It seems that um, in any profession, there's kind of a, whether it's regulated or not, there's kind of a quid pro quo that we. Um, that in exchange for um, uh, credibility, for um, 
getting some kind of letters behind our name or whatever that tell the public, we've done our education, we've had our practice, we have the stamp of approval of some kind of um, governing body that, that um, creates standards. And in return, we try to live up to that and keep our knowledge up to date and our skills up to date and um, and it goes beyond uh, creating work and benefits for the members. It's also a matter of protecting the public from practitioners who aren't up to scratch. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for that. That's uh, that's exactly where I'm going, and it's it's di- it's more difficult, really, in in an unregulated profession, isn't it, Greg? I yeah. know you were saying earlier that you felt the same way, um, to some extent, anyway. So. To some extent, uh, I, I'm someone who, in the sense that I highly value integrity. To me, self-regulation is my priority, making sure that what I do, that I do to the best of my ability and the standards that I understand would be in the best interest of the profession and also the public. Uh, I do know that others may have a differing perspective of what they define as being integrity of their practice and so that's where uh, you know a difference of how things are done ends up being done so like for example when you say to a client or a party or a potential uh, do you know what mediation is about yeah I did that before and you know from that kind of response that it may not have been the most positive one Uh, yet the person who did that process for that person did have an impact, leave a, a legacy for that person that does implicate all of us with regard to that. If it's negative for that, it could be potentially negative for all mediators. Yeah, and I think um, consistency of standards, at least bottom line standards. And I think probably everybody agrees that there have to be bottom, bottom line standards of, of conduct and of performance. The question always arises as where where should that floor be? Um, I think I err a little high on, on the floor, perhaps, um, and there's lots of room for interpretation around where that floor ought to be. But if we're on the same page that we need to have a floor, we need to have minimum standards of, again, conduct and performance, and I, I separate those things because there's a difference between, you know, ethical practice and fitness to practice. There really is. Um, if we agree that there has to be a floor, I'd argue that there have to be consequences for failing to meet it, at least on a, on a, a global basis. And, um, and and there certainly are some. The, the question is whether we'll ever be able to have teeth in an unregulated profession's consequences. I think it's partially, though, the survival of the fittest in some way, though that's not always the, the best uh, way to measure things. You know, you can say that people who uh, have the best practices are the best mediators, which is nonsense. That could be a lie. It, it could be. It's, it's mm-hmm. certainly probably a lie. <laughs> I was going to say a myth, but yeah, you know what? Let's go with that. Well, well can I weigh in here? Yes, um, I'm thinking, too, that different members of the public want and expect different things. So there's a matter of fit. So there may be some members of the public who 
feel more confident in, let's say, a mediator who charges a lot of money and who has this reputation for getting things settled and has a settlement rate of 95% or whatever and um, and will get the job done. And, and there's kind of a, sometimes just this general feeling in our society that whoever charges the most money and ha is, is considered the best in society is, is the best for what they're looking for. And then there are people who, who feel that, no, they, they don't want and can't afford someone like that. They want someone who's going to really listen. And if settlement is what needs to happen, great. And if not, then something else will take place. So I think there's a matter of fit there, too. Joni? Yeah? What else might take place? Um, Learning or? Maybe some mutual understanding uh, between the parties. Maybe some um, easing of tensions between them. Maybe some some uncovering of inaccurate assumptions that have been made. Um, and maybe it's not something that should be settled. Maybe it, it's something that needs to have more information put in before they come to a decision or or whatever, or maybe they should go to court. Who knows? But it, it's not always about settlement. And there are situations that I've seen myself that are much better off not being settled in the mediation. Well, some of us see mediation even as an opportunity just for at least two people to come together who may not feel they can without the assistance and presence and support of a third person just to share information that they found they would really best benefit from in contributing to the relationship. So it's not per se that there's a concrete conflict amongst people. Some of us believe in that kind of approach as well that mediation can be and is. You've been one of my trainers, Greg, and actually this wasn't a lie at all. That was one of the things that I appreciated most from learning from you um, is that sometimes just being there as as a conduit mm -hmm. you know yeah I, I don't like saying facilitation it, it it's a kind of odd word for me but but as a conduit for that kind of communication can be uh can be very very I, i'm going to deliberately say therapeutic that, that's totally cool with me because there's big lie number one Okay, big lie number one that all of our trainers, and we, all, we probably all say this from time to time, we don't give legal advice and we don't do anything therapeutic. Uh, really, I, I mean, the legal information that we provide is so close to what you would call legal advice that I would say that we don't give legal advice is at least to a certain extent a lie. And the role that we play as a conduit, and dare I say facilitator, and I won't, but other people do, of that sort of information sharing that Joni was talking about is highly therapeutic even though we're not doing therapy. It's uh, it's one of the foundational myths of, of the practice. And it's, it's good that we have noble lies. It's good that we have foundational myths. But I think it's important that we confront them um, as we try to be reflective ourselves so that we can raise our own level of, of practice and competence and, and even just caring for the people that are in front of us. I use the terminology therapeutic. 
I have a distinction that it's not therapy, though it can be therapeutic. It can be a means for people to release, express, release, vent, uh, be cathartic in some form that, hey, finally I'm able to connect with the roots of what's been going on and I feel much better and have, have having this opportunity. I yeah. agree with you totally. Um, as a social worker, I've had to make the distinction between um, being a counselor and a therapist. I'm not a therapist. I'm a counselor. But now that I'm a mediator, I'm still not a therapist. But the process is therapeutic, hopefully. Yes. If it's done artistically and competently, then, then it certainly should be. And honestly, the distinction between legal information and legal advice, for those of us in the profession that come from the law school background, such as myself, um, the distinction between legal information and legal advice can be a very fine one. And that's why I consider it a, a, a lie. And, and again, it, it, there's no negative connotation meant to the word lie here. A lie is anything which is stated which is intentionally not necessarily factually correct. And there, you know, well, the noble lie appears the first time in Plato's Phaedo in 2800 BC, so it's out there for good reasons. When, yeah, when, when we lead someone to the child support guidelines, even on a website, I'm not sure that's not legal advice. So, Jody, what are you looking to do right now? My phone is kind of echoing my voice back to me, and it's difficult. All right. But I'd like to hang on. You want to hang on? All right. I'll leave you. Participate. I'll leave you hanging. Okay. In the best of uh, ways. All right. <laughs> I have a guess about another lie. Oh please! What do you got? Sure. I'm wondering if one of the lies is that we're neutral. You think? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, I believe that neutrality is a thing and that it's an important, that independence is an important part of our profession. My question, though, coming from the family mediation background, which is what, what I do all the time now, is we are so deliberately not neutral procedurally right I, I tell clients this is your mediation but it's in my house and that the fact that we're not neutral as to procedure and we're certainly not neutral as to human conduct right we will slap hands where they where it's necessary we all do that to me independence our independence and our neutrality if you will is a substantive one and only a substantive one we literally have no dog in the fight short of an obviously unreasonable arrangement that we that we can't support morally and a lot of the times morally is the key word there right it's just no i personally can't do that and it's got nothing to do necessarily with the hard and fast tenets of the profession i can't do this but because, because we don't, uh, and unless an agreement comes to that level of, of what we will call personal immorality, we're not going to interfere with that. We are substantively independent, but so much of our work is, a, is 
fundamentally non-neutral and deliberately so and mandated as such for for one thing all the uh, statutory exceptions to confidentiality when we call ourselves and are mandatory reporters of of certain conduct to to authorities that can have serious outside deleterious consequences on people say what you want that is not a neutral behavior it may be compelled but it isn't neutral at all so yeah from my end and i know well pardon me i suspect that greg's view of neutrality is even more limited than mine um i think there's more use uh, more actual neutrality in our our profession than i think you do greg um but even from my end neutrality is a real it's a real challenge well for me with neutrality i think a i would look at it two ways there's a, a way we influence things affect things as a third party in a process that's not always intentional or deliberate. So our physicality will affect people that we engage and how they perceive us as being whatever reality that is. So neutrality for me is part of physicality. I can control that I'm a white male, middle-aged guy. People will process that and make sense of it their own way. So already I've impacted the process just by my physical presence. I can try to modify the neutrality of my behavior in terms of how I can try to be you know, balanced and equitable in the process to help parties have the space and the place to communicate as they will. So I ideally don't believe in the whole concept that there's a totality of neutrality as part of us, who we are. Yes, I, I'd certainly agree with that. How about you, Joni? I agree with that, too. Um, I think it also comes down to our own biases, and we have them. And anyone who says that they're not biased is a liar. <laughs> on, on the lying theme. Sure. Um, and I think it comes down to two things. The first thing is awareness, where we um, are aware of our own biases, and we strive to keep them outside the process as much as possible. And in order to keep them outside, you have to be aware of it, you know. What role do you see for reflective practice in that, Joni, or, or Greg, sorry? Joni. What do you mean? Um, is it part of your professional reflection, like at the end of a mediation or, or any independent session, for example? Do you actively look back on things that may have triggered your own unconscious biases? I try to look at it beforehand, during, after, um... I try to be aware at all times of what I'm feeling and how it might be impacting on the situation. I'm not a very neutral person, naturally. Um, I tend to be more of an advocate just because of my personality and training and professional background. But the other thing that I was thinking was important is perception. And as long as 
the parties both feel that they're being heard, understood, listened to, um, and that there isn't any favoritism being shown, then I think that's more important than being, having this unrealistic um, goal of neutrality. So when you say not being shown, that to me brings to light some kind of intention. Yeah. And I think a lot of us may have good intentions not to be intentional with whatever leanings we may have or beliefs we have, yet there's things that we project and people interpret from who we are that they that does influence how people might see our behavior as a third party in a process that wasn't intentional, yet it has impacted the process and the people and their journey th- with it. And sometimes they're right, and sometimes they're wrong. Possibly, yeah, but who's the measurement? And who's the definer of that? Right, so that's why I say it's more important to look at perception. And if someone has a perception that you're on their side or that you're on the other party's side, that's something that you can hang on to and delve into and use it to help them sort themselves out. I think that's lovely. I think um, I really appreciated, Joni, what you said about trying to control for your biases throughout the process, that you're constantly being reflective. Um, And I also think that's a really nice segue into what I think the real biggest number one lie our trainers tell us is. Um, which is about power, uh, oh. specifically our own power as the mm. third person in the room, because we spend all of our all of our training in family in particular. And what are we going to renew every single year? What are we going to make sure we refresh before everything else? Power imbalances, controlling and testing for power imbalances among the parties to a conflict before us. We're never really trained, though to control for our own power in the way that you discussed. And the big, 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 obvious secret before us all is that we have three-quarters of the power in the room at any given time. Maybe more. Because why? Because we're deferred to as the, quote, facilitator or the person to organize the process, conduct it? Or even worse, the expert. And look, there's nothing wrong with expertise. Certainly, let's all get it. Let's all continue it. Let's all improve our expertise. Let's hold ourselves out as experts and mean it. Let's be experts. But because people are going to defer to us as experts, and and sh- perhaps should, but not in a mediation context, because ultimately, like I said, it's their mediation, and we have to be substantively neutral. Given that the incredible, the awesome power that we hold in that room is something that we ought to be taught more about than the relationships that involve power on the the people on, you know, if you will, the other sides of the table. It's our power that has as much or more possibility of injuring our clients um, than, than their own power relations much of the time, yet we seem to take our own power for granted because we're the good guys, if you will? Well, I, I hear in that the, 
a little bit of a doubt when you say that. I just say a skepticism. Yeah, well, which is fine, totally. I mean, power for me is either actual or perceived. And reality for me is that perceived can be much more powerful than reality. And that's, take pe people take what they see as being, quote, the truth and the authority and the emphasis and, wow, and how that influences and impacts the process. And, you know, we try to, for some of us try to, you know, instill the whole self-determination where the power rests with the individual. And for me, self-empowerment. I don't believe in anything about empowering anybody. I don't have anybody else's power. I don't want anybody's power. I, I really uh, ever am adverse to when people do say uh, we empower people. I don't empower anybody. Mm -hmm. How I express it is I look to try to create the conditions for people to better connect with their own power. Self-empowerment is the, the truth for uh, the whole thing about self-determination. Yes, absolutely. And I think that, again, that takes us back to the idea of our substantive neutrality. Because of that, we're not empowering anyone else. Honestly, I don't, no, I, I mean, I'm, I'm inherently flawed. I don't think I have the ability to empower anyone else. And even to the extent that I might, it's, that's not my right Right? It's not my right. I don't have the, the moral authority to do that, certainly. So what I'm more concerned about is controlling my own power and recognizing that it exists. Because a lot of the time, never mind that we're not making substantive decisions in, in mediation anyway, we are still a very, very powerful force for good or, or for ill. And we all know that power imbalances between the parties can be used terribly for ill, educational imbalances, financial imbalances, a history perhaps of intimate partner violence. Um, we rightly control for these. We rightly consider these. We have to be constantly up. I'm wagging my finger at you. I'm sorry, Greg. We have to constantly be, be on the lookout for that. And I'm, I'm screening constantly. Throughout every session, I'm always screening for, for power imbalances in the back of my head. But I'm still holding a lot of power, and I have to be screening, if you will, that power, too, to try to mitigate its impact on the situation unless it becomes important to leverage it, because we can leverage our power for good, and a lot of those will be in procedural decisions that we might make. Well, I mean, if we're, when you say, uh, what's the word, screening, you're screening others. How mindful and aware are you of screening yourself in relation to what you're talking about, that whole power and the influence that it projects as a reality for other people, whether it's consciously or unconsciously. And so it's a complicated thing. Yet the trainings are not geared for self-awareness so much. It's about the other persons in the room. Right, and constant awareness of, of their relations in, in terms of power. Right, with each other, and it's all about trying to help them to make the best, positive, productive decision-making. So, Joni, I know you Did have... Did I make a point? How do you identify tonight, please? Caller? 
Hello, caller? She's left us, maybe. We may have lost our elf on the shelf. Has she disappeared? Joni? Joni, Joni, calling all cars. I still got her connected, but... Yeah. Let's continue our... Sure, absolutely. Our sharing together. Please lead. You know, one of the things you talked about with power, and then the influence of that, or the effect, or potential impact of that, and whether it's positive or negative, especially if we're under-recognizing the influence of our presence, and what that can be perceived in as power, the whole uh, notion of do no harm. Oh boy. Oh. Tell me, tell me more. That represents something. Pull it out. Come on. Yeah, it's kind of a big one for me. Um, first off, the first do no harm piece, supposedly from the Hippocratic Oath, does not open the Hippocratic Oath. That's not what it says. Um, the Hippocratic Oath does, however, say a lot of things that every medical professional violates every single day. Uh, chemotherapy, you have broken the Hippocratic Oath. Um, if you've ever prescribed or given a drug that might have a side effect, whether you know it or not, you've broken the Hippocratic Oath. Um, abortion is specifically prohibited in the Hippocratic Oath. Medical professionals break the Hippocratic Oath every single day, and the Hippocratic Oath was never designed for, if you will, social science professionals or social interaction professionals. And thirdly, it doesn't really say first do no harm anyhow. The more important thing is the only way that we could possibly honor this myth, this, it's, it's a lie. The, maybe the first lie that we, was a, you know, first, the biggest ethical principle of mediation is do no harm. That's impossible. Because the only way that you can do no harm would be to be completely paralyzed and do absolutely nothing, which, ironically, would invariably harm your clients. Paralysis is not good for people. Every intervention that we make carries some degree of innate risk of harm, yet make them we do. In fact, in my personal practice, one of my most key interventions is shutting up. Because every second that I'm talking, I can't be listening. But because I'm so cognizant of that, because I'm so deliberate about shutting up, and perhaps letting silences last a half second to a second longer than they might, because I'm doing nothing during that time, I'm not sure whether I'm not actually doing harm, even in that intervention of silence. Well... Doing nothing is still, from my point of view, doing something. Your inaction is an action of some form. Oh, and it's very deliberate and in that situation. It's a strategy. Sure. It's a technique that we learn to uh, apply at certain points from our training to help people's processing of information for them. Of course, it helps us, too, to buy time to try to make sense of what we just heard and how do we navigate this next? I much prefer uh, a silence to, I think you said, and then repeating back, it, I, I, I find that awkward and unnatural, and I like to have, in, in mediation, wherever possible, as, as comfortable a conversation as, as we're having now. And, and um, sometimes, you know, if I heard correctly, this is what you need. There's a place for that. 
And that's certainly an intervention too, right? Repeating what I think you just said is an intervention. It's something that I just did that could theoretically, perhaps even just by getting a word wrong, do harm. I'm going to do it anyway if I have to, though. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the point of doing training and having experience is to try to do it, quote, right, yet... And better. And elevating that, mm -hmm. uh, putting pressure on that to as a continuum to uh, provide the best that you can do and always question if you are and if you're not, then do something about it. Get more training, practice your skills better, yet there's plenty of us who may do something in the moment that's not helpful and contributes in a possibly negative way yep. to a circumstance for a person and you know people don't always communicate what they feel uh, even in as parties because you know there's this perception that we are the power too and they don't want to undermine us or feel that we're undermined yep. and so th there's a real complication that's going on in those living moments of the process yeah, there's a foundational American idea of mediation that one of the things that a mediator has to be is acceptable. And we don't talk about that very much here as, as much, but I, I like it a lot, right? Because to be acceptable, it's like, okay, maybe I don't like this woman, this man, this mediator particularly. It wouldn't, you know, he, she would not have been my first choice necessarily, but I'm okay with this third party. Right, this third party, as a, a mediator, as a, a, the third person in the room, is acceptable to me, and part of I think becoming acceptable to as as many possible people that you might encounter, is to you know is to recognize that every intervention that we make carries an inherent risk of causing harm but that we have generated enough confidence through our training, through our experiences, through our failures. Yes. Because if something didn't work, do something different. Yeah, right? that's how I learned. Both you know, you've got to question what didn't work to know, to try to see how what could work. Right, and we have the capacity to become acceptable. And I, I wish it was a more, um, a more commonly used Canadian concept because I, I like it quite a bit. So we have a, a little segment of time left. What do you believe is the responsibility of other mediators and trainers as to the points we are having a conversation on today. What do we do with them? Well, one of the nice things that we always hear is that we, the, the greatest skill in some ways that a mediator can have is curiosity. And I think that applies to our, our anyone who's crafting a training course as well. You want to listen to your current students. You want to listen to your own experiences in mediation and outside as well. And um, again, we learn just like in, in mediation, like training, we can learn from our mistakes. And one mistake that people make is being too certain about these you know, these foundational myths, what I, what, what I have sort of tongue-in-cheek called lies today. As long as we are open and curious about their efficacy and, and their applicability in our lives and in our careers and for our clients, who ultimately, right, it is their mediation. As I say, it's in my house, but it's your mediation. As long as we are open to and, and curious about those uh, those underlying pieces, I, I, I think we'll we'll all get there. Curious and ask questions, because for me, curiosity is in the head, so it's a wonderment. What's going on? What's not going on?
Okay. I think in some way that's useless if you just keep it there. You, you got to take it and put it out there and want to learn from the curiosity, ask questions to explore and deepen understanding or potential understanding. So one will ask quick thing. What will people learn from the conversation? Anything succinct that you can present as a... <laughs> the, we, we can constantly get better, and we believe that we'll do that in community. And I think it's to keep challenging ourselves. Just because we do, uh, there could be other ways t to also do and uh, evolve and make it more fluid, etc., etc. So thanks very much, Jim, for uh, helping us uh, pull out this stuff. Thank you, Greg. That was great, and I really appreciate your having me. And again, Joni Cass, feel better. Yeah, get back on the shelf. We'll see you soon. You've been listening to Mediation Station on CHHA, 1610 AM.